Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guest is Perry Garfinkel. Perry is an accomplished journalist, editor, speaker, and author of the best-selling book, Buddha or Bust. Since 1986, he has contributed to many sections of the New York Times and has written for National Geographic, the Los Angeles Times, and other outlets. With Sounds True, Perry Garfinkel is the author of a new book, a book that has a foreword by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. It's called Becoming Gandhi, My Experiment Living the Mahatma's Six Moral Truths in Immoral Times. Perry, welcome. Thank you very much, Tammy. I'm very happy to be here with you. Let's start with what inspired you to do your own experiment, living the Mahatma's six moral truths and the writing of this book. What inspired this? There were two factors. One were personal and the other were external. Personally, I felt I had hit a wall. Uh, As I write about in the beginning of my book, I had descended into a, a, a kind of dark place and acting it out in different Ways and and so I thought it's time to reset, reboot, looking for Perry 2.0. The other was that as I looked around at the world, I saw we were um, we had lost track, we had, we had lost our moral compass, and I was looking around for someone who represented a high level of moral integrity, and. I landed on Gandhi because he was such a figure. And I've been to India many, many times. And like many people, I didn't know enough about the man. And I didn't know about the broad the broad uh, strokes of his interests and his philosophies. So I undertook this uh, mission. I really started on the fall of 2019. And it was the end of December 2022 that I finished writing the book. But over that course of that, what, two and a half years, almost three years, I was uh, following these six principles and exploring what Gandhi meant by them all. Six principles. How did you distill Gandhi's life and teachings into six principles? Well, there are 11 that people point to that he prescribed. I reduced it to the six that I thought I could handle the best. 
uh, and uh, as I joked about, it was was it laziness or, or a book book deadline that you know brought me to taking on six? But I think six is a is an ambi- was an ambitious experiment. And we're gonna talk more about those six principles and how you explored quote unquote becoming Gandhi. Uh, in your own life, embodying those principles. But right here at the beginning, you know, you've talked about this sense of Perry 2.0. And I'm curious how the work on becoming Gandhi changed you, what it left in its wake after you completed the writing of the book. Now, you know, a year, year and a half after that, how are you changed by this? Mm-hmm. I knew that would be the... Uh you know, the test results would be in how much I had changed. And I also knew that this would be one of the first questions people would ask me even before I finished. Have, has it changed you? How are you changing? Uh, and uh, I, I think I, I, in the beginning of my book, I talk about the fact that I laugh more and I cry more. I am, I am more empathic. And so I feel more. I, for some reasons, these six, uh, these six experiments, these six uh, truths I followed, plus traveling to three countries in the world to be where Gandhi was, maybe just uh, made me a more sensitive person and, and kinder to myself, because this was a lot of inner work, Tammy. No, it's very interesting. I, I was not expecting you to say something like, laugh more and cry more. When we talk about these six principles, I'll just state them here so people know what we're talking about. Truth, nonviolence, vegetarianism, simplicity, faith, celibacy. And we're going to go into how these became applicable for you in a contemporary way. But how did any of this help you laugh more and cry more? I just began to see the poignance of the human condition. And uh, uh, laughter, you know, as we were talking about before, laughter is an elixir for me. It, it it's a, uh, en- enables the cessation of pain. Norman Cousins wrote about the power of laughter in, in his book. And uh, I grew up in a family, uh, I'm Jewish, uh, Jewish humor is famous and that was our, uh, both our dagger and our salve. Uh, so it was it was natural to me that as I looked around, you have two choices when you look at the universe and the the way people are with each other in a, in a negative way that you either laugh or you cry. And uh, one one response of laughter seems inappropriate when you th- see death and dying, old age, and all the all the difficulties we have, but sometimes laughter loosens you up to go deeper into where where's the pain and to let it go the crying also uh, i'm i'm a super sensitive guy and uh you know sometimes i'll cry watching lassie you know but it just uh it all came up that these multiple dimensions of the human experience all came to me much more clearly and and so yeah, I I laughed and I cried, and even as I'm walking around now, Tammy, I have thoughts to myself that would have tr- 
triggered an inner laugh, but now I laugh out loud. I'm walking alone for in my three mile hikes every day. And I think of something that I go, ha, huh, you know, I just laugh. And, and I, I get teary eyed as well about things that have, uh, I see that upset me. Right here at the outset, Perry, I want to address the listener who perhaps had a similar halting response that I had as I started reading Becoming Gandhi and reading about things like celibacy and vegetarianism. I'm not celibate. I'm not a vegetarian. And I thought to myself, these principles and Gandhi as a model, as an exemplar, are going to be unattainable for me. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to feel terrible about myself reading this book. How do I even enter Gandhi's life as having lessons for me? And I wonder if you can address that here at the start. Perfect question. Uh, and I can tell it in, the, in, in an anecdote uh, as you know, the original title of this book was Being Gandhi. And as I looked at his life, I more and more, I, I thought what he was seeking and in many ways what he has attained are unattainable. Uh, you know, for most human beings over the course of many, many uh, generations. But in this time where we are witness to more violence, more lying, less simplicity, uh, I, I, you know, I was troubled. And so I realized I should change the title of this book to Becoming Gandhi because the attempt was enough of an achievement. Trying was such a success. And, and I feel that you can take some of these principles and basically taper down or taper up into them step by step. We, we try and we fail, we try again. As the old Zen saying goes, fall off the cushion nine times, get back on at 10. So in, in, uh, in thinking about how to proceed, I just realized step by step is will get me somewhere in an improved way than what I previously was. And that's enough, Tammy. It's interesting, this phrase, you know, taper up, taper down. I think as I engaged in contemplating each of the principles, I was trying to understand what's at the core, what's really happening here. Not so much necessarily the details of the behavior, but what's the inspiration at the essence of the moral principle. I wonder what you you think about Mm, that. mm -hmm. This is a good question. I I think it comes down to, if we look at let's say, Gandhi on faith. Uh, and, and all of these six principles are interwoven. You, you know, they're additive. It's like the Tao of Gandhi. <laughs> but I think that um, the, the core is the question that we all ask, intelligent, sentient, sentient beings ask, who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose? And each of these, I think, drives us down to a simpler state of being in which we can ask this core question. Who am I? What can I do for the world? What what has the world done to me? How can I course correct uh, some of these things? So I think that's the through line, Tammy. Just uh, bring us down to our essence in each of these. and, And then let's look 
let's look at these principles and, and kind of move up. I, I want to make a point about the tapering part. I was I had an autoimmune dysfunction about 10 years ago, and I was prescribed to take um, uh, poly, no, the disease was called polyalgia rheumatica, and I was taking prednisone. And the idea coming from, you know, new age, natural everything, I was, re, it was repugnant, this idea to take prednisone. And I heard there are many side effects, but my rheumatologist said, let's taper down. We'll start with 20 a day, and then we'll go to 15, and then we'll go to 10. And then when we get down to five, six, seven, eight, let's just refine uh, what what you can tolerate and what benefit it 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 will you know show you. And I took the same approach with each of these principles. I don't have to go cold turkey vegetarian. <laughs> no, no pun intended. Um, I just have to eat less meat, less meat, less meat until I have no craving for it. And that's exactly what happened. And I applied the same principle to each of these other five. Let's move into the first principle, truth. You write about how Gandhi coined the term satyagraha, an insistence on and holding firm to the truth. Help us understand what satyagraha is. Satyagraha is is a higher principle related to, uh, let me start by saying Gandhi, when he talked about truth, his first, the first phrase he coined was, uh, uh, God is truth. And then as he got deeper in his studies of the different kinds of truths, which I enumerate, he changed it. He flipped the script to truth is God. That in other words, um, truth can be the guiding force, the guiding principle that can lead you to God. I think the, the biggest truth here is when we look in the mirror. This was the hard one for me, Tammy. You can not lie. That's a kind of superficial way of being in truth. You can acknowledge a higher force than you, that is absolute truth or the, the you know the unconditional truths that we read about the the non-dualism of buddhism but the for me and for most people i think looking in the mirror and looking at your foibles looking also at your strengths acknowledging them working with them dealing with them is is the kind of truth that i uh, i think of and i think for gandhi Satyagraha was was that as well. Well, you know, of course, Perry sounds true, has true in the title. Mm -hmm. And this whole notion of holding firm to what's true is something it's it's really um, it's really important to me. And when I think of your book on becoming Gandhi appearing right now during this time that we're living in, it seems like, for me at least, this notion of our respect for truth publicly. And, you know, I don't, I don't usually go directly into talking about Donald Trump on Insights at the Edge. And at the moment, I just want to talk about him as somebody who I see has normalized lying in the public. So this is my own perspective on it. And it's come to be where there's 
just this sense of like, we can't count on being given what is true when we read the newspaper, the world of fake news, when we listen to politicians, that this is really where I resonated with your subtitle of Becoming Gandhi, Immoral Times. And I'm just wondering how you see that specifically in relationship to this notion of truth and what it might mean for us to resurrect Satyagraha in our time. I, as soon as you brought this up, I thought, is knowing the history of Sounds True, knowing the body of titles you've published, and just FYI, I was familiar with you and Sounds True long before you started publishing books. I knew you as an audiobook publisher. So, uh, yeah, would she bring up uh, Trump? Are we going to go there, so to speak? But it does loom large, and he, unfortunately, uh, more unfortunately from my perspective, he created this um, this uh, energy that questioned truth and flipped it, and it's very unfortunately. The, the, um, Michiko Kakutami's book, The Death of Truth, I mentioned it in my book, and she really goes into the issues that Trump brought up. I, uh, this is my perspective. Yes, he brought in this idea of fake news, but is he and all of that movement a reflection of what you know, 50% of Americans who voted for him believe him? So uh, there is something in our nature that wants us to question the truth. So as a journalist, you know, I've always been looking for the truth. You know, there was a line that uh, you need two or three sources to verify a truth. I think it was Jesus who said, when two or more are gathered in my name, there I am. And and in a way, our truth is based on a consensus. I, as a journalist, again, rely on evidence-based facts. So uh, my sources are the NIMH, um, you know, and, and other institutions that study any kind of phenomena as scientists, and, and the truth will be out in the evidence. Now we're in a, in a time where people are questioning, and, and I and partly also blame the internet. I started, I was working for Rodale Press uh, in 1995, which publishing company you're probably aware of, uh, and th that was when the internet was uh, introduced widely to publications and, and the world. So they taught me how to study websites looking for the truth. You look to the bottom of the page and, and see who's saying this. I think a lot of Americans and people around the world just take these things for granted. Uh, I have a niece who is, uh, deals with some medical problems and she cites Reddit as a source for his her information and i said sweetie that's that's not a reliable source that's a, a, a conglomerate of other people's thinking on these things i feel that we ha again we've lost our way to truth even even when we uh, the media saw trump lying there was some kind of taboo about calling it a lie that that worried me. That made me think that even those who are the seekers of truth, the media, are being pulled in this uh, direction because 
as a courtesy to the president of the United States, they were not going to call him a liar, and which in fact they are lies. So uh, the the caution the cautionary lesson here is check your sources, you know, find out, you know, get a consensus on what the truth is, and then come to your own conclusion uh, and and attribute your conclusion to your sources. That's one way to get to it. One of the things, Perry, there are several things in Becoming Gandhi that uh, made me very fond of you, I have to say, as I read them. Thank you very much. It's true. It really evoked that in me. And one of them is you dig in to what does it mean to me as I, you know, as you put it, how to Gandhi? How am I going to Gandhi when it comes to truth? And in your own reflections, you write, the place where I need to start is, the truth is I lie. The truth (laughs) is I lie. And I thought, you know, I'm going to give Perry a hug right about now, right here at this point in becoming Gandhi. Tell me how you came to that discovery, the willingness to make that statement, and then how it impacted you in your own if you will, process of moving into greater truth-telling? I've always been quite honest about my feelings. Uh, I'm I'm vulnerable, I'm sensitive, uh, and this all comes from me looking within, asking myself, am I I who I am projecting I am? Because we all play this game. You know, I also mentioned that we wake up every morning with a lie in a deeply existential way. We invent ourselves as soon as we wake up. I'm a wife, I'm a child, I'm a student, I'm six foot four, I'm too short. You know, all of these ways we identify ourselves in in a very deeply spiritual way. These are not the truths. These are the, this is the costume we wear. And I'm citing my first spiritual teacher, Ramdas, who talked a lot about, you know, how we recreate ourselves as the reflection of what others are seeing. So when I strip this down, I have to cop to the fact that I do lie and, and that these ways I, you know, invent myself every day is part of the big lie, <laughs> Perry's big lie. Uh, and and I'm, I'm comfortable in my skin with my vulnerability. So, so why then do I lie to others about, you know, when I, and, you know, I'm seeing tongue in cheek, but I, I say I'm 5'10 when I'm really 5'9. This is a true fact. Uh, I'd lie about my weight and my age as a kind of cover-up. And I I looked at these things deeply and said, why, Perry, why are you doing that? Let these lies go. And it was so freeing even to write this down on on the page, so to speak, on the screen and share it with who knows, we hope, you know, millions of people. But it somewhat frees you from the the web of lies that you know that's the cliched expression because one lie leads to the next and if you can unlie then it all is like a, a house of a, a house of sand that crumbles down so it's 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 in my nature to 
to lie and not to lie. And, you know, I get caught in that vicious circle. But I think over the course of the period of this book, I, I came to understand that whatever I am, that's good enough. You know, maybe that's the title in my next book, Good Enough. Uh, but but that, that gives you a little answer to it, does it not? It does. And I'm, I'm really glad you brought in this notion of good enough because, uh, and this is a, a further reflection on what I said in the beginning of our conversation, which is that I found wrestling with each one of these principles. I, I had feelings come up of uh, guilt, of my conscience being uh, tweaked in this way or that way. And I was like, how did Perry do it? How did he take this on for three years? And really, uh, how did Gandhi, how did he do it and face himself in these different ways? Uh, he will try to answer. Uh, You know, uh, I kind of had to withdraw. This is what we'll talk about simplicity too in the context. But first I had to withdraw into myself even more than I am. I'm a kind of loner. I live alone. And um, my, my daughter and husband and granddaughter live about eight blocks from me. But I, I had to cut myself off, just like a science experience. I had to isolate the problem. And we are contingent on. We are all in, in Taoists in that we are interconnected with each other and we're interconnected with our external environments. So first was to isolate myself. And it was, a, it was very difficult. I mean, and then came COVID. And I was coming back from my visit to... South Africa, where Gandhi spent some 20 years, uh, when rumors of this viral disease were going around. And it was, what was it, March 6th that the world shut down. And I thought, uh, many people thought, oh, what a, what a grace period for a writer who's going to write a book and isolate himself. It didn't work out exactly that way. I, I went into a, a kind of... Uh, dark mood. Uh, I don't want to call it depression, but this was, uh, it was difficult to write, let me say. And I drew so- solace from an interview I saw with um, a, a writer, uh, John Lithgow wrote a book, a, a children's book that came out and he was asked, how did you do it? And he said, it was really hard. Every writer he knows is is depressed now. So I had COVID as an excuse to isolate myself and it didn't work out that way. Um, this was, I can admit to you, since I'm you know all about admitting everything, this was the hardest book I've written. And this is the fourth book I've written and the uh, fourth co-authored book I've written. Uh, Buddha or Bus was a challenge because the history of Buddhism, uh, Buddhism around the world. Every country had its own uh, wrappings about a, a type of Buddhism that it follows. Gandhi was difficult because it, he was unattainable. At first I thought, I'll get Gandhi's glasses. I'll try to emulate him. I'll get the wire rim glasses, the, what we now call the John Lennon glasses. I'll, I'll wear a dhoti, the, the Indian garb. I'll, I'll learn to st- uh, 
spin with a charka, the spinning wheel that Gandhi had uh, made popular. I'll do all these Gandhian things, uh, but it didn't work out to be beneficial. It was, okay, I'm learning to spin with uh, cotton into yarn, but it didn't bring me to that place I thought I was going to get to. And that was very frustrating. And to be more confessional, it was so difficult. I almost gave up twice. Uh, and I thought, I can't write this book. It's too big a subject. Who am I to try to become Gandhi when, you know, millions before me, uh, many millions before me had, uh, you know, followed him in India. And he was a role model to Martin Luther King. He was a role model to Barack Obama, Obama tells us. Uh, but as I eased into it, and it became harder, there's a, there's a quality in me that says never give up. You can do it. Uh, and it's like the, um, it's, what is that Nike slogan? Just do just, it. Just do it. And uh, I came to the realization that if I go to the typewriter, the, my keyboard every day, uh, something will come out. And And I'll further admit that when I wrote the first chapter, I thought, uh, uh, this is schlock, uh, a great Yiddish word, by the way. Uh, this is not really anything like any of the other books I had read. And I read something like 32 books by or about Gandhi. And I thought this is way, way off, off uh, tone. Uh, and yet uh, it turned out to be what, you know, you and my editors liked. So I, I really came to the conclusion then that, Wow, telling the truth gains you something internally, and also people like you just as you just said feel a kind of a camaraderie or a, a, a admiration and the willingness to okay if this you know schnook from New Jersey can do it, so can I. Yeah, connection and affection. Okay, here's what I I want, Perry. Mm -hmm. I want to go mm -hmm. through the five other principles. And have you share one powerful insight of how you were able to embody it in a practical way in your life that made a difference? So Great. let's let's move to nonviolence. And you talk yes. about nonviolence in thought, word, and deed. Yes, uh, and nonviolence is, I think, the longest chapter in my book because it's both so important to Gandhi and so important to what the world needs to hear now. For me, uh, you know, and in the, uh, the How to Gandhi section, I talk about uh, don't hit a pillow like the, um, who's, a, who's the uh, psychologist who promotes that? Yeah, Fritz Perls, Gestalt. Fritz Perls, yeah. Uh, I said, I say, um, don't hit a cushion, sit on it. So meditation. But again, just to double back, the violence that we see in the world is the violence we feel inside. So while practically I stopped watching uh, movies that have a lot of violence in them, and by the way, that's a lot, a lot, a lot of movies, uh, I, I stopped or at least uh, tapered down, shall we say again, from watching the news. I remember uh, when the uh, presidential debates came on, they were so violent, so uh, triggered by uh, this this uh, kind of 
feeling of tension that I stopped watching them. So I eliminated these external influences of violence, which have nothing really to do with us in our daily life for large part. Uh, and, and eliminating those brought me a little more peace. And, and then the hardest one, again, is to look at the way I'm violent against myself. And I do write about, you know, the kind of, oh, Perry, you messed up again. I, I spill things. I'm a bit of a klutz. And so every time I would spill something, I used to say, you know, Perry, you effed up again. Uh, and now I say, aha, there it is again. <laughs> and I clean it up. I clean up the mess. And that became a metaphor. Nothing is unfixable. Uh, and, and so the violence I showed myself about being so self-critical, I began to let go of those. And that, I think, was the biggest takeaway. It feels to me, uh, let's just, uh, I'm going to share this feeling sentiment, that in the experiment of becoming Gandhi, a kind of purging was needed to find you know, Perry 2.0, this purging of exaggeration. Do you, know, do, you, does, do you relate to that notion? That's how it felt inside of me, engaging. Well, let, let explain a little more what you mean by purge. Purging, I mean this kind of like vomiting. So it's, it's quite literal when I feel it. And it's like detoxifying. So letting all of this uh, toxicity in me, including the violence that I've watched in films and other mm -hmm. things, pour out of me like a cleansing of some I see kind. what you mean. I would, I would use the word um, filter out. So I would, uh, you know, situationally and with discretion, do less of this, less of this, and, and more of that. As somewhere in my How to Gandhi's, I do talk about uh, taking the things step by step. So uh, you eliminate one bad thing today and you add one good thing. Or you just, in your head, you say, I'm going to stop using curse words. Uh, and, and I'm going to use, I'm going to be more creative with my words. Uh, and then with the, with the words come the feeling. Uh, you know, sometimes feelings leads to words and sometimes words generate a feeling that we're not always identified with because they carry so much baggage and so much emotional history. So uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it purging because I, as I write about and as I'm, I'm explaining, I, I can't completely purge yourself. You can taper down. You can systematically eliminate the, the toxins, as you put it. Now, you know, one thing, once again, you know, to talk about the quote-unquote immoral times that we live in, one of the things I, I notice is even talking about something like our moral compass and Gandhi's moral compass and how do we embody that more, that it could bring forth in people a kind of eye-rolling, if you will. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, my God, really? You know, meaning our... our culture is so built around interesting slang words and our favorite movies, the popular movies, of course, having violence in them. Uh, and so it's like, really, Tammy, you're having this conversation, this conversation now? And I wonder how you address that, that response that some people may have of like eye rolling, even as we talk about this. 
Well, to to anecdotally to speak to the eye rolling, uh, one of the last interviews I did in South Africa was a professor of sociology who wrote a book about Gandhi in in uh, South Africa. Uh, at the end of the interview, of all the interviews, I would turn to these uh, experts and professionals, book publishers of Gandhian materials, and I'd say, okay, fine, but how do you yourself uh, follow any of these principles? And uh, the guy I interviewed in South Africa, I rattled off what I'm doing. And he laughed. He jumped up. He, he interrupted the interview and said, are you kidding? Uh, these are not Gandhian principles. These are principles. These are, you know, values since time immemorial of how we should live a life with integrity. It took it took me aback, and he was right. Uh, I'm calling them Gandhi's principles, but they are the principles of men and men mankind. Uh, and it's a uh, if the eye rolling comes from the fact that we're pinning this on this guy from the late 19th century into the 20th century, an Indian who eschewed formal clothing to, you know, live in a simple Indian garb, the eye rolling is, you know, that is such an esoteric character and has nothing to do with my life today. Let's, let's uh, eliminate Gandhi from the equation. I use Gandhi as a prism to look at these things and it just, happen to work. Uh, if you're anti-Gandhi for some reason, and there are you know, enough people who are, uh, uh, then take him out of the equation and let's just look at these isolated values and see how they fit for you. That helped me. Okay. You think that w- uh, that's helpful. Let, let's move to vegetarianism and how mm-hmm. you took that on your own tapering down, if you will, to use your language. Well, I come from a family that was a real meat and potatoes. You know, every weekend in the summer, dad would grill a steak. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a meal in my family unless there was meat on the table. Uh, uh, And so it came to tapering down again. I remember actually when I signed this contract, I took myself out for a last supper, so to speak, at one of those steakhouses. I was in Jersey City with my agent, uh, and uh, I I ate alone, and it was a steak. And I discovered that it's the anticipation of this piece of meat that tastes better than the meat itself. And I've, uh, as a reviewer of, uh, uh, of restaurants, I've eaten a lot of great restaurants in the world. And when I'm with people, we start eating and the food becomes secondary. And these could be expensive dinners, but I'm the one at the table going, how do, what's, oh, is there cardamom in there? What, what do you do there? But everyone else is, uh, you know, distracted by the company they're keeping, which is a nice thing, but uh, it, it, we, we, we diminish the the actual taste of things. So I was surrounded by these rituals, and I once I unwrapped them, uh, it was it was easier to eliminate them. I had indulged throughout the three years uh, uh, to to eat meat. I was actually writing a book for an Indian a chef, and he made such great food. I had to taste everything on the menu, but the enjoyment of the chewing of the meat and the taste did not feel great 
And then the repercussions of, you know, my digestive system, they shouted at me, do you need this? This is not good for you. Your, your stomach is not prepared to, you know, digest and excrete this much. And so experientially, it was easier. Uh, mentally, it was harder. And Perry, for those of us who who don't know that much about Gandhi, maybe we saw the film and you know we've learned a little bit. Did he write and teach on each of these principles, or is it more looking at you know my life is my message, the famous quote attributed to Gandhi, and saying, "Oh, we're we're deriving these six principles from his life," or did yeah. he declare these principles are the principles? by which I'm living. Uh, I will answer that in a second, but going back to the vegetarianism, uh, I had explained that now I eat uh, fish. So I'm a pescatarian. Another example how I this experiment helped me modify my eating experience and, and I feel healthier and cleaner because of that. Gandhi's was a strict vegetarian. So in answer to your question, let me can you rephrase the question a little bit? Sure. I'm wondering, did he write and declare mm. these are the principles by which I'm living my life and I recommend for others, or is it more just looking at how he lived that no. you derived the principles? He wrote and he read voraciously. Uh, he, he And he was a deep thinker. I think he contemplated... Uh, too much, in my opinion. He was uh, so diversified, but he he burrowed into each of these subjects, eating, uh, and and in fact, with vegetarianism, when he really became a student of vegetarianism, uh, aside from what he, the vegetarian uh, uh, eating habits of his family, his his uh, strict mother, uh, but in England he became a secretary of the uh, Vegetarian Society of London which still exists today and with another name in another place. <clears throat> but he he was a student, uh, as as I hope your readers know, listeners know, he was, was a lawyer and he studied law in England and he, he passed the bar and he became a lawyer. So in reading his things, I always am realizing this is a lawyer looking at everything with a 360 degree focus. Uh, so he wrote extensively. He was writing... He, had st he started a newspaper in uh, in uh, South Africa, and he started another newspaper in India. He wrote, he basically, as far as I can see, wrote the whole magazines, the newspapers, I should say. So he was he was working out his philosophies through his writing and his reading. He he was a voracious reader, and in the the Mani Bhavan, which is the house he lived in when he was in Mumbai, writing um, what became the uh, constitution of the independence, independence from England. He was practicing these things, but he uh, he worked it out. You know, he it was like a scientist come lawyer working out how this works. I have books on each of the these practices. He wrote treatises uh, on health, on education. I didn't get into education in my book because I didn't see it as one of the principles to follow, but he was an innovator in education. He was an innovator in the use of the natural fabrics, homemade, handmade natural fabrics. Each of these 
came from extensive research and thinking and then put them into practice. So you could sit in your room and think of all these things, but then he found ways to apply them in the real world. I also read in Becoming Gandhi that uh, Gandhi was quite a walker and that he walked many miles a day and that that was one of the practices you also took on in your own How to Gandhi experiment. Yes, uh, and uh, I never achieved, it's said, and I've read it many places, that he walked 10 miles a day. And he he walked at a fast clip. And I, I tried to calculate, you know, what, what that would mean and how many hours a day. And it's impossible to do unless you're an athlete in training. Uh, but I, I started uh, training and building up. And I was walking five or six miles a day before I went to India as, as a kind of ritual. And uh, now I walk at least three miles a day. And it's like 45 minutes uh, or to an hour. And I often, nowadays, I wonder, Tammy, how am I fitting this in? I mean, I got a lot to do and more that I should be doing, but I always, and I say this underlined, I religiously walk at least three miles a day. And what difference does it make? One, it clears my head. It oxygenates me. Um, It's an aerobic exercise because I do walk at a faster clip. Uh, I work my arms and my legs, and it frees my mind to free associate when I'm walking. The tricky thing is to uh, have a notebook and stop, or now then I uh, now I have my uh, phone where I can talk into because I found that in writing. <clears throat> uh, you can be stopped on a line and you can't figure out the right way to write it. And you can be paralyzed by this line and you can give up for the day. And then I discover if I walk away from the keyboard and take a walk, I swim frequently. It's then that this perfect version of the line I've been spending an hour trying to polish comes to me full blown. And then the trick is to get it down, write it down, speak it to myself, because ideas are ephemeral. You know, they come and go uh, like your mind. (laughs) So uh, yeah, walking is, and the irony is when I worked for Rodell Press, which is a health, uh, publishes health magazines and books, uh, I I came, came, became aware of lots of little factoids that I follow. And one of them back in the day was that uh, walking, even 20 minutes of walking is good exercise if you can do nothing else. And there's science behind it. So I realized this is a good thing. I shall do this. And, and now I'm not Gandhi now. I'm still becoming Gandhi. But the walking was a, a powerful addition. And it sounds superficial a little bit. And just as now I eat oatmeal for breakfast because Gandhi ate oatmeal. He ate oatmeal because it was the cheapest kind of breakfast he could have. But it turned out that it was a good value add. It was good for my digestion. It was simple. And the less I found, I found that the more ritualized I became, uh, the less I had to think about what I'm going to do. So, uh, and, and as an example, I don't have to think about, will it be eggs this morning or uh, French toast or something else? It's oatmeal and fruit. Which leads us, uh, Perry, to 
principle number four, I want to see if we can at least touch briefly on each uh, six of the principles. Simplicity, it sounds like you've simplified your breakfast. Tell us something else about how this teaching impacted you, has changed you. The first thing I did was go into my closet and simplify my closet, which is, again, a, a wonderful metaphor for your all your emotions and your your life. So I took out clothes that I never wore. They were cluttering my closet, and I recycled them. I gave them away, uh, uh, and and that also held true to things in my apartment that I keep. I I've traveled a lot, as you can imagine, throughout my career. But for those the, that period, I was following Gandhi. I was on the road two different times for 10 weeks at a time, uh, and then a few three-weekers in there. And I'm really adept at packing everything I need into a carry-on. And when I come home, I I unpack this carry-on on the living room floor to separate out what to wash it, et cetera. And I look around in my closet, even my stripped-down closet, and I think, wow, I have so much stuff. What do I need all this stuff for? I seem to thrive very well on this one carry-on suitcase. So it made me look at ways I can just simplify. The other one is, um, I mentioned uh, Marie Kendo's book, uh, Spark Your Joy. Keep only things that really give you joy. Uh, Some of the things we keep, uh, I think many of the things we keep are tied to memories. Some of them are not great memories, so you can discard those. Uh, the other thing was uh, spend less time online. Uh, now, you know, there are hotels that will invite you and your spouse, your, uh, your uh, traveling companion, to leave your cell phones at the front desk. It's a great challenge for most people nowadays where the cell phone seems to be embedded in their palm. But... Uh, it's valuable because the less input you have from time to time, the more you can go inside and look at what your issues are, what you love and what you don't love. So, um, yeah, and I and I fall victim to this. I get in bed at night and I have my laptop in my lap in bed. And those are the last images I look at. And they, so I'm bombarding myself with more data, more information that I don't necessarily need. Uh, and, and so I can get a night's sleep that is not being distracted by the last images I saw. Powerful, good, clear, simplicity advice there, Perry. Thank you. Now we have, we have two more, faith and celibacy. Let's tackle celibacy first. How Let's could this be it. at all meaningful to you? At this point well, in your life, right as I wrote, uh, I've been virtually celibate because I don't have a significant other a girlfriend uh, of in my life, so it was not hard to be celibate. But still, sex lives in your head, and uh, so I began to eliminate trig- sexual triggers. Uh, uh, whether walking in the street and seeing a beautiful woman and turning around and looking at her again, why was I doing that? Why did I need that? Uh, uh, and um, taking my filter, as I said before, and looking at 
ways in which, which we are also bombarded by images of sexuality. Uh, the cliche sex sells is true. So the, uh, the commercials on TV, the, the ads in newspapers, the, the ads we see online often have somebody very pretty, whether it's a man or a woman, uh, to, to promote the sale of this whatever. So I began to do that. Um, I'm, I, I had been going to, uh, 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 porn sites. I eliminated those. Uh, there's a wonderful movie. What's it called? Don Juan, uh, about a guy who has the most perfect woman in the world. It was Scarlett Johansson. And he, she caught him looking at a porn site the night he was with her. And I thought, this is too close to home. <laughs> and uh, how am I sabotaging my true appetite for sexuality? Uh, I, and I, 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 I was challenged by your editor, Haven Iverson, to address how does celibacy have a moral, uh, why does it fit on this, this plan for living a more moral life? And I was pulled up and uh, could not really answer that. Gandhi's explanation is it's a purification process. So maybe from the yogic position, um, you know, it's it's like not going into your lower chakra. We should be moving up the chakras into our ultimately our crown chakra. Uh, so the pull of of sex can distract you from the the mission to find your purpose, uh, unless you're a porn star, I guess. Uh, but for me, it was the, of the six, it was questionable. How does this bring me to a more Gandhian lifestyle? And at the end of the day, I, I'm not sure I would have included that. It, it was one of his primary, uh, you know, of the 11, it was always up there in the top six. In Hindi, it's called Brahmacharya. And uh, I should say personally, <laughs> if I may, my ex-wife, God bless her, gave me this beautiful daughter. And at the time we were studying with Ramdas, who was encouraging brahmacharya. So Iris and I tried brahmacharya for a while, but our, we were young, we were in our twenties and we were, our sex drive was still alive and well. And, you know, one night in bed, we probably touched elbows and it triggered our desire to make love. And there's a difference between having sex and making love, I want to point out. And we made love, and we both think that that was the night I impregnated her with this beautiful being, Ariana. So uh, I cannot say that uh, celibacy uh, would, I would not prescribe celibacy unless you see it as a, as a kind of uh, experiment with abstaining, abstinence. And then go for it. Go back to making love with your lover. Thank you. That's a, a beautiful explanation, the love making and the notion that we, as we explore Gandhi's life and teaching and what we can learn from it, we can find our own way here in terms of a creative interpretation. Healthy lovemaking might be our interpretation. I'm, I'm, I'm also always surprised by these phrases, like you and I are saying, making love, 
But having sex is one that sort of dissolves its meaning. Or I went to bed with her or him. Uh, uh, okay, what did you do? Sleep? It, it's uh, our way to kind of obfuscate the fact that uh, uh, sexual intercourse is an expression of our love. Moving to the last principle, because there is one more thing I, w- I need to talk to you about, Perry. So we have a lot yes. to cover. So let's faith. touch on the sixth principle, faith. Yes. And this was a, a really interesting experiment for me. <clears throat> I uh, grew up in a Jewish family. I was bar mitzvahed. Uh, at the time of my bar mitzvahed, uh, it was, I was actually turned off by the rabbi who I discovered through rumors and actual experience, uh, drank alcohol, and it, it turned me off to Judaism. The other thing that turned me off to Judaism was the fact that I didn't have a direct experience of God through uh, prayer and, and attending services. Uh, and that's why uh, I moved toward Hinduism and then Buddhism, because in Buddhism, if you meditate deeply, the absence of everything else brings you closer to godliness. I'm not going to say God, but godliness has a different kind of meaning. So the universe, the force, whatever you call that, uh, that sense, uh, that the thing that holds this whole, th- whole world together, uh, I had less of an experience of it. So I moved to the Eastern philosophies and, and spiritual practices, which I did find gave me more of a sense of my spirit. Uh, Gandhi grew up in a very uh, devout family. Uh, Vaishnav is uh, one of the esoteric branches of Hinduism. Uh, and I, uh, faith is, faith drives our moral compass it is the it is the moral compass the right thing to do uh, these these phrases that we say and and the leap of faith i just explored more deeply what they mean what do we mean and what do they mean to me and what can they mean to you i'm and i'm an empiricist i as a journalist as i said before evidence-based information is what uh, convinces me to follow this path or that path. And the leap of faith uh, means that I have to accept uh, this idea that there's something that I can see that convinces me uh, there is a higher being. Uh, and so I, I, I had, what is faith became my koan, uh, the, the Zen question that has no answers. And I went around to my local community and I realized, well, within my community, within a two mile radius, there's many, many, I mean, dozens where I live and more so in cities. And I went to leaders of of several different uh, uh, churches, uh, uh, synagogues, temples, uh, and practices of faith. And I asked them, what is faith? And to be honest, their answers seemed like the party line. They didn't really bring me to the answer to what is faith because it's too intellectual endeavor, I would say now. And the 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 experience of faith, in my experience, comes from, uh, I'll say two things, comes from meditation practice 
And, and the other is I found that in writing my last book, Buddha or Bust, uh, Buddhism is the religion of no gods. It's the, it's the faith of no faith. It's, it's trust in what you see, hear, feel, experience. Uh, I, I joke that I came from the religion that invented the one God theory, and I moved to the religion of the no God theory. But somewhere in between, we all have to find what is the, what do we have faith in? And oftentimes it's faith in yourself, faith in your ability to overcome obstacles, faith in your ability to believe in yourself, faith in your, uh, faith in your trust of others. And, and I think that as we uh, savor and nurture and water these vague ideas that even I'm talking about now, but to contemplate what is faith will bring you closer to faith. Would you say you've made a leap of faith in your life inside you? No. My, my faith has come from uh, years of failure. Years of the, the falling off the cushion have been more instructive to me than back on the cushion. I think my, I, I, I don't leap to faith. I slowly rise to faith. I don't fall in love. I rise in love. Uh, and, and once I fall in love, it's very hard to fall out of love. It takes me a time to fall in love. And I think the same thing about faith. It took me years, uh, I think. But that said, intuitively deep down, I saw in my grandfather who founded a, a synagogue, in a small synagogue in a Queens Village, New York, uh, He, the way he carried himself, the gentleness of his personality, the attention he would pay to me and my sister, these are so moving right now, I'm almost, you know, drawn to tears myself. Um, and that he, Grandpa Garfinkel, taught me what could be faith. And so I, he's, he was my kind of guiding light in many ways. That all said, I feel like from a very early age, I was a spiritual expeditionary. And I know you'll ask me, what is that? What do you mean by that? And I think I mean that... I've always wanted to find out what is the truth, what is my truth, uh, what is, why are we pulled to get put together here? And I, because I don't believe in God as a being up there in heaven, I, I continue to ask myself, uh, what is faith? How do I find faith? Uh, how can I exhibit faith if I don't, haven't taken a leap of faith? All of these questions keep, uh, and, and the practice of becoming Gandhi has always uh, has only amplified the volume of these questions I ask myself. And again, it's the asking that leads you to a sense of of uh, understanding. If you don't ask, you know, you're never gonna you're never gonna get there. Which wherever there wherever there is. <laughs> And then the last thing, uh, Perry, and I, I don't think it would be fair to this whole conversation of the practice of becoming Gandhi without bringing this up and understanding how you hold it, is that even before reading Becoming Gandhi, I had heard that there were criticisms of Gandhi, that there were some of his writings that uh, people considered 
to be racist in tone. And I'm curious to know what you discovered in your research were the biggest criticisms Mm -hmm. and how you were able to take that in and make peace with it as you were practicing becoming Gandhi. Okay. So I'll speak to the two major criticisms. Uh, and, and, and as I point out in the beginning of my book, and I'll just say for your listeners, I, it was difficult to isolate Gandhi's principles from Gandhi the man. And then again, Gandhi the, the politician who never called himself a politician, but he was highly influential, obviously, to the history of, of India's independence from England. Uh, and the and so that said, the separating all that out because the other criticisms may come from his his political actions and and the criticisms from that he may experience from Muslims or or zealot Hindus. There was a zealot Hindu who assassinated him. Uh, so isolating all those, uh, he when he was in South Africa. He had called uh, the blacks kafir, which at that time was a, a, a very derogatory term for blacks, the Zulus and other tribes. So he used that and some other derogatory phrases. My way to explain it and justify it is uh, when I was a kid, uh, maybe we use words that would not be used today ever. Uh, so, And he was in his uh, 20s when he was in South Africa. So when the Black Lives Movement latched on to Gandhi was a racist and they started uh, um, vandalizing and pulling down Gandhi's statues all over the world, uh, examples in many different countries, it was that that drove it. And I feel that I could forgive him if he changed, if he had changed, just as my vocabulary had changed uh, and my, my feelings have changed in the you know, 40 years I've been on the road. So I forgave him that. The one that I had trouble forgiving was there's a stories and examples and writings about him uh, having gone to bed and slept beside two of his nieces. And they must have been in their early 20s or teenagers. And he did it, he said, to test his celibacy. It, it, it was a very flawed experiment, and he was, he spoke about it publicly, and he was publicly criticized for it. I explain it as his flawed thinking that sex comes from just sleeping next to a, 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 a woman, in his case. And I don't know. We don't know what happened between the sheets. Were they naked? Were they dressed? Um, was he? But uh, the flaw was that thinking that, he would be sexually aroused by sleeping beside these two women. It showed me that he had basically turned off his his uh, his sexual uh, uh, chakra, that he was asexual by that point in his life because it was after his wife had died. So those were the two major, and I have no excuse or explanation for them other than what I just told you. But as I said... Uh, you know, I I saw this as a a flaw, and forgave it because we all have some flaws. So so that was how I dealt with it. And when you think of this beautiful phrase, "My life 
is my message. And you think of Gandhi's life. We've talked about these six principles, and you've explained that as a lawyer, trained lawyer, he wrote about these in, in great detail and, you know, gave the argument, if you will, for these principles. But now we step back. And this will be the last question, Perry. And we look at this question, my life is my message. And you told us so powerfully about your grandfather as a person whose life embodied this quality of faith. What comes up for you when you think of Gandhi's life as his message? What comes up for me when I think of Gandhi's life as his message? What comes up for me is that he he was not afraid to undertake these arduous experiments uh, and and kind of try different things. He was an he was an education reformist and all the other things we've talked about. Uh, what also comes up for me is uh, that. Uh, this this question that always comes up uh, as we talk about people in history, did man make history or did history make the man? Uh, Gandhi was a unique in- individual. Was he a saint? Was he an avatar? Was he a Mahatma, a great soul? He was a great man. And he uh, he, he moved the dial in so many significant ways uh, by his simple life. But uh, for him to, for us to emulate that is dif- difficult. I thought the question you were going to ask me, which I'm going to pose to myself, uh, how do I see my life? Is my life my message? Because everything he said, we have to take as a kind of bounce back to, can you say that about your life? And with humility, I would say my life's work are, are the books I wrote. Uh, my and especially this one, uh, this book I hope you know helps people take on some of these principles and see how they improve their life. It has it has improved my life, and uh, uh, my work is my message. But my relationships are also my message, and uh, in some ways I uh, fail at some of these relationships and I work to improve them. I can only work to improve myself. And, and I think, uh, my friends who know me say I'm, uh, uh, persistent. I, I'm, I'm not going to be pulled down by defeat. And I, I think Gandhi, you can say the same of Gandhi. He had great opposition to what he was do, what he was attempting to do, but over time, Uh, he was proven to be right. It's a hugely inspirational book, Perry, and one in which I feel so much warmth for you, the writer, and your journey, your experiment. Thank you so much for not giving up and completing Becoming Gandhi, my experiment, living the Mahatma's six moral truths in immoral times, a gift to us. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in the after show Q&A session with our guests, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community featuring award-winning original shows, live classes, community learning, guided meditations, and more with the leading wisdom teachers of our time. 
Use promo code PODCAST to get your first month free. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world. <laughs>